Yeah, you, know no, okay. you can hear me okay? Yeah. Strange question because if you couldn't hear me you wouldn't really be able to respond. Anyway. Um, let's pray. Let's pray. Father God, we just praise you dear Lord. I praise you dear Father for having this wonderful privilege and opportunity to be able to share your word. Lord, I pray dear God that you'll hide me behind your cross dear Father that we'll be able to open our eyes and our ears and our hearts, dear Lord, to be able to receive your word, to trust in the scriptures, to believe in everything they teach and say. Father, I pray, dear Lord, that this message will be a blessing unto the people that are here, that our lives may be changed forever. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now every single time a person gets up to share God's word, and I know particularly in this church that... Um, the desire is to share, is to change your life, to change it forever. No pressure. No pressure. But I know that the men in this church particularly, and I think of Pastor Frank and Brother Alan and, and Steve and, and David, have that desire that in this short period of time, in you know, half an hour, an hour, that something in your life will change forever. And... Uh, Today we're going to be bringing up a, a message that is talking about eternity. And it's a follow-on from the message that I delivered a couple of months ago because I couldn't, just in this one verse, I, there was no way I could bring out everything that was there. And it was a little bit of a struggle too because the Lord gave me this verse to share. I had no idea how deep that actually was and how much it, uh, it, how much it, what it means. You know, and to be able to bring it out fully. So if you've got your Bibles, please turn to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8 is where we're going to be taking our text. When they speak about um, high points in the, uh, in the Scriptures, it's interesting in the, in the Old Testament it seems to be Isaiah 53, seems to be a real, a real pinnacle, a real high point of the Scriptures. In the New Testament, they're often referring to Romans chapter 8 as just this incredible high point in the Scriptures. I want to draw your attention to verse... Well, start at verse 16. The focus of the verse is verse 18, but it really starts at 16 to get a bit of a picture. The Lord says here, The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ... If so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be, to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. In the first portion of the, of the, of the message, I think there might be still a couple of copies over there, but I'll give you a little bit of review so we can at least know what the starting point was. When Paul speaks about it, we, we, we broke down the word reckon. We understood through the scripture and through how God uses that word in the scripture that it is a conclusion, an absolute total conclusion of everything that has gone before. So everything that Paul has spoken of and everything that he understands, he then comes to this conclusion he reckons. So it's not based on our, our idea of opinion as we often have these days. We touched on Leviticus 25, 50-52, which was talking about the accounting of a slave. How do you account the cost of a slave prior to the Jubilee? It was you reckoned the cost of that slave. It was a, it was a price. 
Uh, the same thing was with respect to land in Leviticus 27. In Numbers 23, we had it used a little bit differently that the children of Israel were not reckoned among the people of the world at that time or these particular people at that time. Not numbered, not accounted as. So we broke that up and, uh, and we understood uh, reckon. We also, we also looked at and we took the sufferings portion of the, of the text. For I reckon the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. What does the Bible teach us about sufferings? And we, and we spoke about the sufferings in the world. It doesn't, you don't have to go far to recognise all the sufferings that are in the world. And we touched on natural disasters, on earthquakes and tornadoes and storms of all kinds and the sufferings that that brings. We spoke about health and the suffering that that brings through injury or, or pain and some sort of disease and the like. So there's suffering involved in that. We know um, women have the suffering when they go through childbearing and, and the like. So there's, there's sufferings that's involved. Well, is that the sufferings that's referred to in this text? There's so much more there too. I mean, you think of crime and the different suffering that's, re- that, that's represented there. We spoke about divorce and the sufferings that are involved there with all the children and, and the like that might be involved, not to mention the antagonism between the parties. So the question was really, you know, if this is a suffering and there seems to be a link between the suffering and glory, is that the suffering that is not worthy to be compared with the glory? One of the things we recognised as well when we were going through this particular passage, God through all eternity always calls the people through suffering. Through suffering. We know that. I mean, if I, I, would, I would probably I wager there's a good portion of people that have come to the Lord Jesus Christ out of a form of suffering within your life. It was certainly within my life. I'm, I would bet that it would probably be the same with many of you, that through some difficulties and some trials and some tribulations that you've gone through, you've looked to God. You've, you've come to the Lord God in order to be able to save you through that suffering. He revealed himself more fully to you and you came to Jesus Christ. That is the way that God calls. He uses that suffering to call people to himself. That people will acknowledge him. Remember we spoke about C.S. Lewis and C.S. Lewis actually mentioned that suffering is God's megaphone in a deaf world. But there is something that we find in Scripture Something unique here that we find, how upset God is that when you suffer and don't call him, but go to another counsellor, whatever that might be, he is really upset about that and hands you over to that level of depravity. He continually calls people. In Isaiah 30 verse 1, he says, Woe to the rebellious children, saith the Lord, that take counsel, but not of me, and that cover with a covering, but not of my spirit, that they may add sin to sin. There's a recognition here in Scripture where if you're not calling God because of your own pain that you're going through, and you're going to all these other counsellors, you're going to be handed over. You're never going to be relieved through that pain. I've got family members, exactly the same. Exactly the same. They go through and they'll consult this and they'll consult that and they'll have a a temporary kick and a temporary buzz that all of a sudden they're they're feeling fantastic. 
only all of a sudden to be let down. We find that again in Scripture. Just have a look in your Bibles. Turn to Isaiah 47. Isaiah chapter 47. The Bible addresses all those who suffer, yet they ignore the God who calls them, but rather trust in a multitude of other counsellors rather than God. Isaiah 47. And we're going to be looking at verses 10 to 13. See if you can recognise something in this. See if you can recognise if this is something familiar today. If this is something that still goes on today, even though God here is speaking to Babylon. He's speaking to a pagan nation in this particular text. He says, For thou hast trusted, this is verse 10, For thou hast trusted in thy wickedness. Thou hast said, None seeth me. Thy wisdom and thy knowledge, it hath perverted thee. And thou hast said in thine heart, I am, and none else beside me. How incredible, I am. Why do we see that in scripture? Who's that usually referring to? It's referring to God, yeah? God refers that about himself. That's his name, I am. A few years ago you had Shirley MacLaine running out into the beach yelling out, I am, I am, I am. What do they tell you today? They tell you, oh, the answer is found within yourself. You have to go within yourself. You know the truth. It's within you. You hear it all the time. I am the answer to my problems. No. No. This is what God's trying to say here. Let's continue on. I am and none else beside me. Therefore shall evil come upon thee. Thou shalt not know from whence it riseth. And mischief shall fall upon thee, and thou shalt not be able to put it off. And desolation shall come upon thee suddenly, which thou shalt not know. Incredible that as we are handed over to our own suffering, we don't even relate what we're doing to the suffering that we're in. This is how God judges the people. You don't know that what you are doing, because you are not coming to God, you don't know that what you're doing now is a direct relationship with God. It's a direct result of not coming to God. He stands there with outstretched arms calling us to him and yet we don't go to him. And the very means of our own comfort becomes our judgment. Leads us back into this comfort which again becomes our judgment until we come back to God. It's this continuous circle and you all know people that are in this cycle all the time. It doesn't change. Let's continue on. In verse 12, he says, Stand now with thine enchantments and with the multitude of thy sorceries, wherein thou hast laboured from thy youth. If so be, if so be, thou shalt be able to profit. If so be, thou mayest prevail. In other words, go on, go on, go back to it. Go back to your other counsellors. See if you can stand. I'm judging, but go back to them. Don't come to me. No, don't come to me. No, go back to them. And see, see if you're going to stand. Logically think about it. This is a, 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 it, was, it was so heartbreaking when I was sharing this with my mum, who was very much in that exact same position. I said, mum, you keep going back to this stuff and you never, ever, ever are delivered. You go through the same problem time and time and time again and you continue to seek the same solution for the problem. Oh, it's this, it's this, it's this. You know, and she was into the new age, so that didn't help. So this is what people do. Have a look at the next bit, see if there's a recognition there. You might be able to notice something that might still be going on. 
13 says, Thou art wearied in the multitude of thy counsels. Let now the astrologers, the stargazers, the monthly prognosticators stand up and save thee from these things that shall come upon thee. God has always called people through the suffering of the world back to him. Should that suffering that you're going through within the world lead you back to God, then you've got an idea of the suffering that is related to glory. Okay? But should it not, then that suffering only has judgment as its answer. Do you understand what I'm saying? There is two distinctive types of suffering found here in the scripture. One is one that leads to glory. Though not worthy to be compared with it, and we'll touch on that in a moment. The other is that which leads to just perpetual judgment until it finds itself in eternal damnation. Okay? So that's that first part of the text. Now that was really by way of review. We noticed that we also spoke at that particular time about how God has dealt with his children, people that are his, children that are his, the suffering that they had and what they went through. We touched on that as well. Okay, So we touched on what is the distinction between godly people, the children of God, their suffering and the suffering of the world. And to really bring that out fully, and I know we spoke about it then, but there, more than likely there was a number of you that weren't here. There wasn't a lot of people here at the time. Turn to Hebrews 11.32. Hebrews 11.32. And just within this, you'll see a um, quite a, a relationship between that sort of, of suffering. This is the sort of suffering that God exalts within Scripture. Hebrews 32, we'll read it to 39. It says, what, And what shall I more say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and of Barak and of Samson and of Japheth and of David also and Samuel and of the prophets who through faith subdued kingdoms, wrought righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the, the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, waxed valiant in fight, turned to fight the armies of the aliens. This is what God has called them to do. Through faith they do this, but there's consequences that they go through. Verse 35, women received their dead raised to life again and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Tortured and a better resurrection. Notice the link. There is an incredible link there that there is a form of suffering that leads to a better resurrection, leads to a greater glory. Verse 36, and others had trial of cruel mockings and scourgings, yea, moreover of bonds and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn asunder, were tempted, were slain with the sword, were wandered, wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. I want you to keep in mind that word worthy. We're going to need to touch on that. They wandered in deserts and in mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. And these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. God having provided some better thing for us that they without us should not be made perfect. Here is a really brilliant picture in the Old Testament 
on how God uses the suffering of the Old Testament saints to bring them to glory. So there's an incredible link there. There's another distinction in the, in, a, in, a, in the very text that we're in. So back in Romans chapter 8. We're going to be referring to Romans chapter 8 constantly, so it's worth keeping your finger there. Back when we were talking about it in verse 16. And the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may be also glorified together. And then he talks, for there are reckoned that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. What we find here is that there is a link between our suffering and the sufferings of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. So there's four main points that I'd like you to try and get out of this message. I'm going to give it to you up front just in case you miss them. First point is all those that are his suffer alike. All those that are his suffer alike. The second point is the suffering is temporary and glory is eternal. Third point is it's incomparable to glory. Suffering of this present time is not worthy to be compared. Fourth point is it leads to hope and godliness. So the first point, all those that are his suffer alike. We just read something, that particular portion in Scripture talking about exactly that. It's the children of God, the share in His sufferings, the share in that likeness. In 1 Peter 5.8, the Bible says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour, whom resist, steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. We go through similar trials. We go through similar difficulties. We go through similar pains and troubles. Sin is one of them. Guys, if you're not suffering as a result of sin, you're not a Christian. It's it's that simple. If you are not suffering as a result of sin, you are not a Christian. If you are suffering as a result of sin, then you are sharing in that suffering that all Christians suffer with. We have a dual nature, the Bible teaches us. That we can't do the things that we want to do. We have a desire to obey the commandments of God, but we don't obey them because of the sin nature that's within us. Yet we are continually called to godliness. Make sure, please, having understood that, you don't use that as an excuse for licentious behaviour. Okay, it's not an excuse to go out and sin and do whatever the heck you like because, hey, you know, I'm a, I'm a, you know, I'm, I'm, I, I serve God with the spirit, you know, but with the flesh I serve the law of sin. You know, it teaches this. It does not teach licentious behaviour. If you are not struggling with sin, if you don't have a deep mourning for sin and a grief in your heart that you can't explain, Repenting of the same sin over and over again. If that doesn't describe you, you're not a Christian. You have not given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ. You cannot have the Spirit of God within you, not battling against that particular type of suffering. This is a suffering all Christians uniformly struggle with. You're not uh, unique when it comes to that.
Okay, If you don't have that battle, my friends, you really need to come to the Lord. You really need to be born again. But within this, there's also other trials that Peter talks about. When you read the entire epistle of 1 Peter, there's other trials and tribulations that he attributes also to the saints. In James chapter 1, he says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into diverse temptations. Knowing this, that the trying of your faith worketh patience. But let patience have a perfect work, that ye may be perfect want and entire, wanting nothing. James tells us that we need to have joy in our temptations, trials, tribulations, those sort of difficulties. First Thessalonians 3, Paul says that no man should be moved by these afflictions, for yourselves know that we are appointed thereto. And the second Timothy, he says, Yea, and all that would live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecutions. So all those that are Christ's, all those that would live godly, all those that follow after the leading of our Lord and Saviour will suffer persecutions. If you're not suffering persecutions, maybe you look a little bit too similar to the world. Maybe you do. Maybe you do. Because, mate, I can guarantee you that when you stand apart, when you get invited out and you're not drinking, or when you get invited out and you're not going along the same line that they are, mate, it's pretty tough. I had a bit of a tough time last, last the other week. We went to the snow. It was great the first few days. We had the Hipworth family there, which is beautiful. Unfortunately, Nikki and Mum and Dad left us a little bit early because Nikki decided to break her wrist. But we had a wonderful time. After that, I had my employees come up and I also had one of my suppliers come up and also a representative from an organisation that usually gathers a lot of work our way. And that was hard. That was hard. I was happy that I wasn't there the first time because the guys were, you know, they, they had a bit of a drinking session, you know, they went out a lot at night and stuff like that and I came up the next day when they were well and truly hung over, you know, knocking on the door, ready to go out, go out in the slopes. But it was really difficult because there were certain things that the guys were happy to entertain and I wasn't, you know, and they knew that, they knew that and somehow they seemed to antagonise that just that little bit more. When you decide that you want to stand godly for Christ Jesus, that you want to live a life dedicating yourself to the Lord, this is your decision to make. You're going to stand apart from the world. Your very actions is going to be a judgment upon the world. Okay? So you understand that. Okay. Point number two, the suffering is temporary. Suffering is temporary. The glory is eternal. For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. It's important to understand something really simple. If there is something that comes after the suffering, then the suffering must be temporary. Okay? If there is nothing that comes after the suffering, then the suffering is permanent. That which is before, that which comes after, must of its own nature be temporary. It can't be forever. It can't be everlasting. Paul talks about here and he says of this present time, it is now. But that which comes after, if there's nothing that comes after that, that's eternal. That's forever. That is forever. The sufferings of this present time he speaks about here. Having said that, you would recognise that the glory which is revealed in us is eternal. Why? Because there's nothing that follows it. Nothing that follows it. I want to read just a, a small passage from a book. 
that uh, might be able to give you a little bit of a picture with this. Um, so we'll touch on that in one in one second. There was something else that I wanted to touch on. So we understand those sufferings are temporary, okay? They're not permanent. And that's what the Bible's talking about because there is something that comes after it. There is the word revealed in the scripture there as well, okay? It's something that is concealed. Right here, the word revealed is used elsewhere in scripture, not least of which is respecting the unveiling of the Lord, our Lord Jesus Christ. It is the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's the same word with a slightly different form, but it's to reveal. Something is simply understood to make manifest that which was hidden, yet always was. The revelation of the glory that's going to come for us is something that was already determined by God in eternity past. This is something that always was, yet won't be revealed until we're with the Lord. Just as the revelation of Jesus Christ wasn't revealed, is not going to be revealed until he's here. It's that unveiling. In our context of Romans 8, the word is strangely set as yet to occur, but inevitable as if already complete, already determined complete. Now, example. It is concluded true, for I reckon. That's the conclusion. It's concluded as true. And it's also determined which shall be, okay, for the sufferings of this present time. For I reckon sufferings of this present time, which shall be. And then it talks about shall be. Went to, I had a, a builder's course that I've been doing at Master Builders in, um, in the city. And we're doing contract law. You have to understand words are important. Okay, they are really important. When it comes to writing contracts, every single word is there on purpose. Every single word is there on purpose. It's incredible, isn't it, today that people don't even think the word of God, the words there aren't really there on purpose. They just, they just appear, you know. But when it comes to a contract, the words are there on purpose. And listen to what the teacher said to us. He said he drew the distinction between two words, should and shall. Should and shall. He said... One word, should, refers to an optional preference. Okay? You should do this and this. Okay? It's an optional preference. The other word, shall, is law. It's absolute. It's law. When you see the word shall, he said in a contract or in a, or in a document of law, it is law. You shall do thus and so. Okay, so the word shall here in scripture is exactly that. It shall be revealed in us. Another note, it's passive. It's passive. There's nothing we do to attain it. We passively receive it as it shall be revealed in us. And we with patience look forward to it. This particular passage that I want to read to you comes from a, a, a fantastic book. And if you've never read it, it's called The Pilgrim's Progress. Um, Charles Spurgeon made a, made a note that he would read that book once every year. Some of you struggle reading the Bible once every year. Can I encourage you to try and read the Bible two or three times a year? Once every year, it's pretty hard to get into, 15 minutes. But if you dedicate an hour, then you've got a good chance of reading it through three times a year. This man would read this particular book, Pilgrim's Progress, once a year. Just to, just to keep him on top of things. And it's this really interesting passage. So it's, a, it's an allegory. And he's speaking of what he's seeing in a dream. And I want you to have a look at these two particular people. 
Every individual is named after a certain characteristic. Okay? Let me read. And I saw, moreover, in my dream that the interpreter took him by the hand and had him, and, and had him into a little room where sat two little children, each one in his chair. The name of the eldest was Passion, the name of the other, Patience. Passion seemed to be much discontented, but Patience was very quiet. Then Christian asked, Christian is the, um, is the person that's going on the, on, the, on the pilgrimage. Then Christian asked, what is the reason of the discontent of Passion? The interpreter answered, the governor of them would have him stay for his best things till the beginning of next year, but he will have all now. But Patience is willing to wait. Then I saw that one came to Passion and brought him a bag of treasure and poured it down at his feet, the which he took up and rejoiced therein and withal laughed Patience to scorn. But I, beheld but, a, but I beheld but a while and he had lavished all away and had nothing left but rags. Then said Christian to the interpreter, expound this matter more fully to me. So he said, these two lads are figures. Passion of the men of this world and patience of the men of that which is to come. For as here thou seest passion will have all now, this year, that is to say in this world, so are the men of this world, that they have all their good things now. They cannot stay till next year, that is, until the next world, for their portion of good. That proverb, a bird in the hand is worth two in the bush, is of more authority with them than all the divine testimonies of the good of the world to come. But as thou sawest that he, he had quickly lavished all away and had presently left him nothing but rags, so it will be with all such men at the end of this world. Then said Christian, Now I see that patience has the best wisdom and that upon many accounts, one, because he stays for the best things. Two, and also because he will have the glory of his when the other has nothing but rags. The interpreter says, Nay, but you may add another. To it the glory of the next world will never wear out, but these are suddenly gone. Therefore passion had not so much reason to laugh at patience because he had his good things first, as patience will have to laugh at passion because he had his best things last. For first must give place to last because last must have his time to come but last gives place to nothing for there is not another to succeed he therefore that hath his portion first must needs have a time to spend it but he that had his portion last must have it lastingly isn't that wonderful isn't that wonderful and there's so many people that are like that they want everything now they don't want to wait until later there is an eternity to come but they don't want to wait so suffering is temporary, eternal, um, glory is eternal. This next point, incomparable to glory. This was a real struggle for me to try and get my head around to understand. The Bible says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that shall be revealed in us. Are not worthy to be compared. Every single time I tried to memorise this verse, do you know what I'd say? Can't be compared. I could never get the, you know, you're trying to memorise scripture, right? And as you, and I think even in my, even in my first message, I really struggled with that. I actually got to that point and I said, it can't be, no, not worthy to be compared. You can see it in that last message. And I was really wrestling with this the other night 
thinking, why is, why is that so different? It's not worthy to be compared. And we know it's not worthy to be compared, but what does it mean not worthy to be compared? And I'm trying to understand, not why doesn't that seem to fit in my mind well to understand? This word worthy is not, not it's found in the dead centre of the verse. Okay, there's 25 words in it. This one's the 13th. It's right there. So I think, well, look, I'm going to take it for granted that it's, that it's an important word. So I'm going to try and bring it out. 69 times it shows up in Scripture. Every single time it's pretty much the same way. Okay, it's not, it's something that's referred to. It's not deserving, not actively deserving or earned its right to be. John was not worthy to even undo or tie up the shoe latchets of, of Jesus' feet. We are, we are not worthy of, of heaven. The Bible says that they were worthy of damnation. They are worthy of judgment. Why? They are actively contributing to that worthiness. But here we have the sufferings is not worthy to be compared. And I'm still trying to... In the end, I thought, all right, what is worthy to be compared? What is worthy to be compared to eternity? Now think about it. It has to be a direct contrast. You can be worthy by actually running parallel, okay? So something can be worthy to be compared if it's sort of parallel. Does that make sense? But it can also be worthy to be compared if it's a polar opposite. It has to be a direct contrast. What's, what's, a, what's a direct contrast of white? What? Black. Black is a direct contrast to white, isn't it? It's not red. If you wanted a real contrast, it's, it's black. Okay? Red is not worthy to be compared to white because it's not really a direct contrast. It sort of doesn't even run parallel to it. But black is a direct contrast. You get the under- you're starting to get a little bit of a picture? I'll bring that out a little bit more. Paul talks about our sufferings of this present time and he calls it a light affliction. Turn in your scriptures to 2 Corinthians chapter 4. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. This is wonderful, you know. When you, when you look at how Paul uses this, you know, we go through, there's so much struggle and so many trials and so much suffering that we go through. And yet here in chapter 4, Paul just... And, it, and it's really interesting when you think about the rest of the scripture that he speaks of. So in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 17 to 18, he says, For our light affliction which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Light afflictions. Light afflictions. Keep your hand in Corinthians, but turn a few chapters over to chapter 11. Chapter 11. I want you to have a look at the light afflictions that Paul is talking about. Now notice that it's within the very same epistle. So as he was writing this particular light afflictions, he was also writing there afterwards this other portion of some of the light afflictions that he is going through. And I wonder if you would consider them light. We want to look at um, verses 22. This is 22 to 31. We're going to read. So this is what Paul considers as light affliction. He says, are they Hebrews? So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they the seed of Abraham? So am I. Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I more. In labours more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequent, in deaths oft. Of the Jews five times received I forty stripes save one. 
they think that you know if it's if it's had to be thirty nine stripes, if it's 40, 40 stripes, it's excessive. So five times he gets thirty nine. Anyway. Thrice was I beaten with rods, once was I stoned, thrice I suffered shipwreck, a night and a day I have been in the deep, in journeyings often, in perils of waters, in perils of robbers, in perils of my own countrymen, in perils by the heathen, in perils in the city, in perils in the wilderness, in perils in the sea, in perils among false brethren, in wearies and painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and nakedness. Beside those things that are without... That which cometh upon me daily, the care of all the churches. Who is weak, and I am not weak. Who is offended, and I burn not. If I must needs glory, I will glory in the things which concern mine infirmities. The God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which is blessed forevermore, knoweth that I lie not. Paul calls this light afflictions. And these are just for a moment. How many of us really struggle within our own sufferings? You've got people in the world, you've got kids that are doing themselves in because they can't see the end of their pain. People that are in business that are struggling financially can't see the end of their pain. You might be going through things and issues at school. People are stirring you up, people are taunting you. You can't see the end of your pain. It's a misery to you. You can't see the end of it. And Paul's saying here it's a temporary affliction, it's temporary. Guys, if this is happening to you, if you're going through some stuff, don't stop. Don't stop. It's temporary. Don't give up. It's temporary. Okay? Nothing in this world lasts forever. Nothing lasts forever. It's temporary. But there is a contrast. And the only contrast that I could consider when it comes to the glory that shall be revealed in us, the direct contrast that I find here is one known as hell. That I looked at and I saw that is a perfect, direct, polar opposite to glory, to heaven. And there was a few points that I just want to touch on. The darkness of hell is made evident by the brightness of glory. We know that there's not going to be any sun or any moon in glory. We know that the Father and our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ will be our light. We know that we will share in that light. But the darkness of hell is made evident by the brightness of that glory. How dark will that darkness be? We get a hint of it in Revelation. It's going to be a darkness that can be felt. That's how dark it's going to be. Second, the misery and torment of hell is directly comparable to the joy of glory. The joy and hope of glory. There's a direct comparison between the two. The two are polar opposites. The joy that we have over here is only made more manifest by the misery that's going to be in hell. The loneliness of hell is comparable to the fellowship we share in glory. The Bible says being glorified together. The very passage that we're looking at in chapter 8, verse 18. Glorified together. The saints will be in heaven fellowshipping together in hell there will be utter, utter loneliness and despair the last point, the fourth point it's eternal it's eternal if all the dust on this planet if all the dust we have on this earth represented one day in hell Friend, you would have hope that you will come to the end of it. You will have hope that there will still be an end. You understand? 
Every speck of dust represented one day in hell. You would have a hope that there would be an end because the earth is limited, isn't it? There's only so much here. But there is still a hope. But that 1,000 times the dust of the earth had passed, yet no closer would you ever be of being delivered from this. This is why we share the gospel. This is why we come and share the gospel to this world. Irrespective if they want to hear us or they don't want to hear us. If they want to believe us or they don't want to believe us. This is why we share the gospel. And if you're not saved, please know what it is you're looking to. Know what it is that's ahead of you. You have to come to Christ. You have to be saved. God has given us our Lord Jesus Christ that he will be the propitiation for our sins. If he is not, you stand alone. You stand alone. You stand before the judge. And you've got to give an account of your actions with no covering whatsoever. This is why Christ was there for us. So there you find a great distinction. The last point leads to hope and godliness. Turn back to Romans chapter 8. Verse 18. And we'll read to 25. And he says, For I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. For the earnest expectation of the creature waiteth for the manifestation of the sons of God. For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. Because the creature itself also shall be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. I want you to recognise something there just for a second. That it wasn't just man that fell. It was not just man that fell. When the fall occurred in the garden, all creation fell with it. Science talks about the law of thermodynamics. The second law it talks about a law of constant decay. There was a particular point with which all of a sudden the entire world is decaying in some form or another. We've got the, uh, the exponential decay curve that goes like that. If you've done electronics, you'll recognise it. If you've done physics, you'll recognise it. <coughs> Funnily enough, if you've studied the Bible well enough, you'll also recognise it. It's found in the patriarchs. You just plot their ages and have a look from Adam all the way through. You see everything going normal. Then you plot their ages on a graph and you find incredibly the exponential decay curve found in scripture. I wonder if Moses knew about that. You know? It's amazing. But the entire creation fell at that particular point. Verse 22. For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain <coughs> together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to with the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man saith, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that which we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Incredible, we have a hope to look forward to. Romans 5, 3-5, he says, And not only so, but we glory in tribulations also, knowing that tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience, and experience hope. Hope is the end point of what we go through. We have hope. In John he says, in verse 16, he says, These things I have spoken unto you, that in me you might have peace. In the world you shall have tribulation. 
But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. This is our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. He's overcome the world and we are to have good cheer because He has overcome the world, meaning we share in that overcoming. But that hope needs to be manifested somehow in our lives. When you go through difficulties and struggles and trials within your own life, how do you respond? How do you respond? Do you throw your hands up in the air? When you're stuck in traffic, how do you respond? You know, there is a hope that we have, and it's in our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. We have a hope of eternal glory. It should be leading you to patience. Regardless of what goes through, when that job doesn't come through, how do you respond? How do you feel when you're applying for it? Alan would know, he'd be able to give us a good guide. If you've ever gone for a job and you've got a couple of jobs in the balance, is there one that you prefer? Or are you happy to just say, Lord will choose? Do you know that hope sets itself totally apart from the rest of the world? As the rest of the world live in fear? What's going to happen tomorrow? Who's going to win the election? Who's going to win? Paul! Mate, I've had to switch off the telly, guys. I've had to switch it off. I'm just sick of listening to what's going on these days. But how are we to respond? Do we respond with, well, you know, I am to lead a life that's honouring to my Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ. I have a responsibility within my home and within my family. I have a responsibility to share the gospel. There is a simplicity in Jesus Christ. We don't need to complicate it with all these worries. We need to recognise that there is a glory that is yet to be revealed in us and that leads us to hope. And hoping in something that is not seen, we should have a very quiet, passive demeanour, enjoying the Lord, sharing the gospel. And that is how you are a witness in the world. Pastor Frank mentioned, when you go out there, guys, if anybody that knows you're a Christian, if anybody knows that you've gone to church, if anybody even sniffs at the idea that you're a Christian, you are a walking billboard for Christ. How does that make you feel? Some of us not too good, you know. But it should be making you feel fantastic if you are just resting in the Lord. Enter into that rest. There is a rest to be entered into, guys, and it's a wonderful rest. That way you can have patience, knowing, hey, things are going to happen in my life. I am to lead my life in a certain manner, I know that. I am to make godly decisions, I know that. And should I make those godly decisions, then things will just occur. Pastor Frank mentioned Crystal Creek. I could tell you why. I could tell you why. And with all my heart, I believe, because they are fervent in sharing the gospel. They are fervent in sticking to the truth. They will not take down their signs. They share the gospel so clearly that there is no child that goes there that is not aware, at least consciously in their own mind, that there is eternity to pay. That's why God opens the doors. That's why he opens the doors. If you've never experienced that, then you really need to start trusting in the Lord. The Bible says to trust in the Lord with all thine heart and lean not unto thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him and he shall direct thy paths. The road won't always be straight. I can promise you that. But if he's directing it, you've got hope. You've got hope. 
Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you for the wonderful joy of our salvation. We thank you that we have indeed an eternity to look forward to, a hope to look forward to, and a joy to hold on to. Father, help us, I pray. Repent of our own sin. Repent of our own level of unbelief. Help us, dear Father, I pray. Just repent of the things when we desire to live our life to please ourselves. Let us recognising that the absolute pleasure that we can ever experience is to live our lives pleasing our Saviour. Father, I pray that as we go on from this day that our lives may be changed for all eternity, that we will remember the words within the scripture that you have already given us and we will ingrain them within our heart that we may have length of days and long life, trusting in our Lord and Saviour and being a light and indeed a megaphone in this deaf world as well. Thank you, dear Lord. We pray that you bless the rest of this day for each of the members here and the rest of the week until we meet again next week. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.